It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I want to start by giving myself a little pat on the back, Whitney, before we get into today's subject matter here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. I want to give myself one of these. Whap, whap, whap. Good job, Jason. Good job. I've been wanting to do something which may on the surface appear very minimal and very like, why didn't you get to this years ago? But life. I feel like if we're honest about it, the great majority of humans have at least one or maybe 10 or 20, God knows how many things. It's like, oh, I I really wanted to do this. And we just put things off. We as humans have a tendency to procrastinate things. I finally did something two nights ago that I've been wanting to do for at least two years. And it was something to help what I sort of projected might be an assist for my mental health journey. And it is this. One of the things that for my entire life, even prior to my depression diagnosis, that has always been a way to change my state, not meditation, not breath work, not watching cute cat videos, although I do appreciate all the TikToks you send me, Whitney, even if I do procrastinate on watching them. It is music, and there's something about listening to like your jams, like your songs, that can, for me at least, be an instant state change. So I've been wanting to put together a playlist of the songs that make me the most joyful, like the ones that come on and I'm like, oh, shit, you know, the ones that you're just like, yeah, that's my jam. If I was a wrestler, that would be like my intro theme song of like, are you ready, brothers? Like those songs, like pump you up, get you happy, get you in that zone. So I finally did it. I finally created this playlist called Happy Feels. It's on Spotify. We'll link to it in the show notes because if anybody wants to peep this playlist, A, I'm really, really fucking proud of it because I feel like it is dynamite curation on my part. But B, I've been listening to it each day, Whitney, the past 48 hours, washing dishes, listening to it before bed. If I start to feel a little bit of anxiety, I'll turn the playlist on. And my God, the power of music, the power of the vibration of song to lift you up. It's just, it's incredible. It's my favorite art form, like hands down, my favorite art form ever. So this list is like a hundred and hundred, I don't know. It's between a hundred and 110 songs. It's like over seven hours of music. So if y'all are taking a road trip, you can enjoy J-Ro's Happy Feel playlist on a nice chunk of your road trip. It's many, many different decades of music, many genres, but you will get a glimpse into my, my psyche through listening to this playlist. So that's the first thing I just want to like, yay. I finally got the playlist done after like two years. That is not the subject I want to bring up for the uncomfortable part of this podcast. I slept in this morning and my girlfriend, Laura, had left her phone next to my portion of the bed and I was meditating after I woke up. I do my meditation, Whitney, right after I wake up. I don't wait till the end of the day before the animals rush into the room and disrupt me. I've tried meditating with the animals in the bedroom. Not possible. It's just like, dad, dad. So I do my meditation right after I wake up. During my meditation, my girlfriend's phone was was like blowing up. I didn't know it was on. I'm like, why is this phone blowing up? You know, so I look at it to like turn it on silent. And I notice that she's got like these random texts from like 3.15 in the morning. 
from like a number with no name on it. And the interesting thing I noticed is where my mind went to. And it's fascinating how life, I think, gives us opportunities to look at situations or trauma that are unhealed for us. And for me, at least, Wit, I think I've gone years thinking that I've completely healed certain traumas or certain situations in my life only to have some random moment come up and be like, oh, oh, fuck, that's not actually fully resolved for you. So my mind immediately went to some random 917 number, it was New York, I think, texting my girlfriend at 3.30 in the morning. Who the fuck is this? So my mind immediately went to, oh, is she cheating on me? Which is interesting because, first of all, you know, she's given me no inclination or reason to suspect anything like that over the course of our relationship. But this innocuous text at three something in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, my mind immediately went to, who the fuck is che- texting my girlfriend at 3.30 in the morning? And I'm like, oh God, this is going to be so uncomfortable to bring up with her. How the fuck am I going to communicate this, you know? So she wakes up. And I was like, you know, hey, babe, you know, I I was meditating and your phone was blowing up and I went to go turn on silent. I noticed that some random number texted you at like 3 a.m. And I'm like, you know, and in this cadence, not an accusatory, but I'm like, who who's texting you at 3 a.m.? And so she opens her phone and she's like, oh, it was some spam text about my stimulus check, like someone like trying to scam her about a stimulus check. She showed it to me and I immediately felt a sense of relief. Now. It's interesting to me, though, that this has brought up a lot of residue of past trauma of being cheated on. And so I want to dig into a subject I don't believe we've ever even scratched the surface on here, which is infidelity and cheating. I think maybe we've mentioned it in some of our relationship episodes kind of glazing over it, but we've never really gone deep into this subject of cheating and infidelity. And it's an interesting thing because one person who has an interesting framework around infidelity, fidelity, cheating, monogamy, open relationships is Esther Perel. And Esther Perel got huge a few years ago with this amazing TED Talk. And she, she's she got these fantastic books out. I have read two of her books. I've watched her TED Talks. And you know, she gets into the psychology of why people cheat and the internal dissatisfaction that leads people to cheat. And moreover, one thing I want to unpack today, because I feel like this has a lot of dimensions, this conversation is whether or not we are, quote, wired as humans to be monogamous. You know, if there's one creature in nature we share the majority of our DNA with, Whitney, it's the bonobos. And the bonobos are very much not a monogamous culture of chimps, of great apes. They are very much poly. They express their sexuality freely. And with bonobo culture, they actually will engage in conflict resolution through mutual masturbation. <laughs> like if there's in, in the bonobo group, if there's like a conflict with the monkeys, they'll literally like pleasure each other to resolve the conflict instead of fight, which I think is really advanced. I mean, first of all, can we give some props to the bonobos if humans did that? Like, yeah, well, fuck you, Jimmy. Actually, you know what? Let me jerk you off, Jim. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's just jerk each other off. Like the world would be a much better place if instead of bombing and fighting and killing each other, we'd finger each other and jerk each other off. I just want to put that out there. It would. World would be a much happier place. I digress. Infidelity is such an interesting subject, and and it's something that I need, obviously, to clearly look at within myself because it's something that's happened a few times over the course of my relationships, my, my partnerships, and I clearly still have a trigger in there that I need to look at. And the question is why? 
you know, because in my current relationship, there's been nothing that's caused me to distrust my partner. There's nothing that's been any red flag around that area. But I think I still have fears around being lied to, being misled, being cheated on, having my trust broken. And I'm, I'm, it takes a lot for me to really put my trust in a person. Like it takes a while, Whitney, for me to really, you know, I guess take those walls down, you know? And so this morning was just an interesting jump off point. So I guess I just want to unpack this idea of infidelity and the psychodynamics behind it, the emotions behind it, because it's such a complicated subject. And I guess I want to start off with, you know, with this bonobo jump off point in Esther Perel's work. Do you believe that we as humans are like wired one particular way in terms of monogamy or polyamory? Or do you feel like it's a learned behavior? Like, What's your perspective on, on that part of, of human sexuality and commitment? I don't have a strong a perspective or opinion on this at the moment. I am fascinated by it and I've reflected on this. I think if I fall anywhere on the spectrum, it would be in the monogamy zone with like a little leaning towards having being open to multiple partners and not just personally, but meaning like what I've observed in others. I also was thinking about this. I think yesterday I saw a TikTok video of someone pointing out Khloe Kardashian's relationship with Tristan, I think, is is who she had her daughter with and how it they've been in this cycle, I think, and a very surface level understanding of their dynamics because I don't really pay super close attention. I think that they've like dated a bunch and he's cheated on her over and over again. There's been this pattern of it. And this video was like using a meme on TikTok of like, okay, Tristan, you really want to be in a relationship with Chloe, right? And they're like, okay, great. Well, that just means that you you can't cheat anymore. And then he's like, okay, never mind. We're not interested. And I remember like reflecting on that thinking, I wonder if, if there is a part of him that really feels that way. And then I started thinking, hmm, it's interesting how some people really want to be in a relationship, but they still want to have other partners. And part of me thinks like, well, there's nothing really wrong with that. It's... The idea of dishonesty, deceit, and not being in alignment, crossing boundaries, disrespect, all of those things. And I thought, well, first of all, let's try our best not to judge other people's relationships. Like, in terms of the Kardashians, people love to speculate based on their behavior. But what if, on some level, Khloe Kardashian was okay with that, but she wasn't saying it, so nobody really knew. They just kind of assumed that she wasn't okay with it. But let's just say Chloe's fine with him having other partners. What if the media is sensationalizing it? You know, like there's a lot of this projection of what our ethics are and our comfort levels are onto other people when the truth is people live their lives in very different ways than us and they might actually not mind the things that bother us. Like they might not get triggered by the things that trigger you, for example, Jason. And that thought process of, well, why is it mutually exclusive in terms of if somebody loves someone and wants to be with them and have them be their partner, but also has the desire to be with other people? Do they have that desire because it's something at their core, like kind of going back to your question, Jason, like this idea of like, can humans be monogamous? Are we meant to be monogamous? I think it's a, it's like a kind of a nature versus nurture conversation. And, and my feeling is it's more nurture. Like we have 
as a society found benefit in monogamy or at least the majority the the masses the conventional approach in western culture too i don't know enough about other cultures but in the us and other countries that operate like us i think it's just like put into our head from religious perspectives from security perspectives financial benefits like if you break down all the reasons that people might get married to have children you know all of these ideas in our conditioning. So I think it's challenging, Jason, when something like that has really gotten into our head to think outside of that. And I'll go on a quick little tangent. I watched the HBO docuseries on Heaven's Gate, the cult that had the mass suicide, which I believe is still accurate. I mean, it must be accurate because this documentary just came out that it was like the largest mass suicide in U.S. history. And 38 people all died, chose to end their lives together based on their belief system. And it was really interesting watching that show because, first of all, I didn't know that much about it. And it really wasn't that long ago. I think it was like 30 years ago this all happened. They were all celibate to the point where some of the men, Jason, got um, castrated is the word, right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them, not all of them. And part of it, what's interesting, it's it's a fascinating story, especially if you don't know that much about Heaven's Gate. It's on HBO, four-part series, so it's about four hours long. And first of all, I think the leader, quote, leader, he was gay. Second of all, he really wanted the group to be gender neutral. So all the women got their hair cut short. So they all looked alike to the point where that when they were discovered dead, the initial observation, they thought everybody was male because all the women looked gender neutral. It's also interesting. Gender neutral is assumed to be male in their eyes, right? Just because the women had short haircuts. But they're all trying to like not let gender be a thing, which I thought was fascinating. And they also were celibate similar to like monks people that choose to be devoted and focused. They didn't want to get off their intentions of their mission and all of the things that they believed in. So they didn't engage in sexual activity. And part of how they controlled it and the leader in particular, Jason, like, you know, they were trying to manipulate their bodies so they didn't have the urges. And what's interesting, the reason I bring that up, not just about their sexuality and the preferences, choices, is that one of the big points from that docuseries was just how much that group think can impact your brain. And they actually had throughout the series interviews with people that had left the cult and survived the mass suicide. And some of these people were in that group for like 15, 20 years. And to this day, they still struggle even it's like their brains are split where like they had the willpower to leave the cult, but they still feel shame and guilt. They still wonder sometimes should they have participated in the suicide? They still like have all these lingering old emotions. And one of them, if I interpreted it correctly, he struggles to speak Jason because of the trauma he experienced in the cult. He felt like from what I understood of it, he lost his voice because he felt so much shame. And now he is like still struggling to speak because of the trauma he went through in that cult. 
And I'm bringing that up because all these people, I think were adults, at least, you know, 20 years age, maybe a few were teenagers, but like 18, I'm not sure. But like most of them were fully developed adults. They got into this cult. Some of them chose to end their life and their brains were so influenced by each other as adults. And I think it's fascinating when we look at this nature versus nurture perspective of things like celibacy and monogamy and, you know, whatever choices people are making. If you can be that influenced as an adult, imagine how influenced you could be if your entire life you've been told these things about sex and cheating and monogamy and, you know, being attracted to the the opposite sex, you know, like all of these ideas that we have about our bodies and our desires and how it's, it's so ingrained in us, Jason, it makes it very complicated because what if deep down you feel some sort of natural draw to something or you just have an urge to do something that's outside of it. So your brain becomes so conflicted that perhaps you make choices that hurt other people or hurt you. And like, all of these compounding experiences and frustrations people have, I think, really reveal themselves in our relationships, especially when it comes to sexual desire. I think what comes up for me is what is the actual purpose of marriage in the modern world? Because if you track the history and the convention of marriage, there is certainly the religious component of a union of Again, traditionally speaking, I'm speaking from a religious context, and when I say this, I'm not endorsing this as the sole union, but a man and a woman coming together, making children in the eyes of God, endorsed by God. I mean, if you think if you think about the traditional wedding vows, they are very religious when you think about the amount of spirituality and, and religion and God that's infused with traditional wedding vows. So there's that one side of it is sort of the religious overtones of the union of man and woman to procreate and, you know, spread their seed on the earth, so to speak. The other side of it, though, is very much being part of the state and part of capitalism in the sense that marriage was a convention in union with religious pressures to create more wealth and power and asset holding between people in certain classes, i.e., if you got married and you were part of the ruling class, you know, over here, oh, we've got, you know, 500 acres and we've got 35 donkeys and we've got, you know, gold coins and over here, well, we've got weapons and we've got castles. Well, the consolidation of power was a massive driving force behind the convention and the institution of marriage. All that being said, right, there is probably a potential, looking at the historical record, possibility of using monogamy to control the reproductive rights of women. I mean, there's that part of it too, of like, you're only going to be with this one man, you're only going to have his children. Now, I'm talking about sort of like, you know, European Anglo-Saxon cultures. If you look at other indigenous cultures, very different. Many of them in their spiritual tradition, instead of God as a male figure, God was in female form. And in some cultures, indigenous cultures, there were women that were open to procreate with whomever they chose. And there wasn't this rigid structure of you will only procreate with this man to make sure that the consolidation of power and wealth and the bloodline keeps going. I mean, if you really think about marriage, Whitney, it really is about keeping power and money and control in a specific bloodline. The historical reference of marriage, again, in, you know, Eastern European, whatever, Anglo-Saxon cultures, indigenous cultures, nonwithstanding. All that being said, what is the purpose of marriage in the modern day? 
you know, I like I joke sometimes with my girlfriend. I'm like, we should get married because, man, those tax breaks, those tax breaks are killer. I joke, half joke, but it's half true. Like, I don't know that many people question to what you pointed out, Whitney, with the programming and the nurture versus nature part of this. Many people even question what they even want in life. Oh, I definitely, I want the storybook wedding and I want the husband and I want three babies and I want the white picket fence and I want the whatever. Why? Because you've been told that's what you are supposed to want or do you actually want it? I mean, I would venture to say, I have no research to back this up and I'm not even sure if research is available about this, but I would think a large majority of the human population never even stops to question why they want these things. Or what the purpose of them even are. You know, is it an emotional and psychological security? I have this person. I'm going to be with them for the rest of my life. I never have to date again. I never have to go through all that bullshit of trying to meet someone and tell my story 55 more times. Like, I've got my person. Maybe part of it is emotional security. I've got my person. I can I can relax and settle down now. I never have to be out there dating. Maybe that's one part of it. Maybe the other part of it is, yeah, there is a very sort of deeply reptilian part of us that does have a lust for power. And, you know, if we marry the rich person, the person who's got status, the person who's got fame, yay, then I'll automatically be associated with the status, wealth, fame, power that that person has accrued. That still happens. I mean, we can obviously see many examples of that. This is all to say, I personally feel that I was under the illusion when I was younger of wanting to have a a wife, a life partner for that emotional security. They'll never leave me. I'll have this person in my corner. I can count on them. They'll be my everything. But as I've gone on through many relationships in my life, I've realized that I don't necessarily feel more or less emotionally secure when I'm in a partnership. Why? Because everyone is free to change their minds whenever the fuck they want. And a person can say, you know, this isn't really working for me. I've been in many wonderful relationships and many wonderful relationships have ended. You know, marriage is not a guarantee it's going to last forever because the reality is it won't last forever. You know, you may be married until you die, but at some point, either you or your partner will die and you will have to let go of that person. So the illusion of, um, and I call it, to me, it's an illusion of emotional security. It's an illusion of safety in a relationship in that sense. doesn't mean you can't feel safe with someone, but this idea that you'll be with them forever and it'll be this end-all be-all. I don't believe that's true. That being said, you know, this idea of being cheated on to take it around to the, the other part is, is a different layer because I think the question becomes, how much can we actually trust another human being? That's a really important question. How much trust do we place in another human being? And I think for me, if I'm honest about it, probably because of my traumas that I'm still clearly needing to work through as evidenced by what happened this morning, there's a part of me, Whitney, this is really hard to admit. I think there's a part of me that doesn't 100% trust anyone. That's hard for me to say because I... I know that there's a part of me that tries to protect me from pain and protect me from more trauma, which I know is not possible because if you go through life and you open your heart and you take risks and you put yourself out there, you will be hurt. I believe it's an inevitability of life to be in relationship, to be disappointed, to be let down, to have our hearts be broken. I don't think there's any avoiding that. But there's still a part of me that I think gets to a place where I'm like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to extend that much trust to you. 
And I, I really need to work on that. I really need to work on my trust issues. It's not that I like keep people completely at arm's length, but I think when they get to a certain point of closeness, right, then I'm like, oh shit, I don't know if I'm going to let you in there. I've let you in like 90%, but that last 10%, that like, that like tiny door in that room in my heart, I don't know if I'm going to really let you in there. And, you know, it brings up a really good question of like, how do we fully trust after we've been hurt? I trust to a degree, but I know for me, there's a level that I still, I hold back. I hold back. I do too, in a lot of ways. I mean, I have trust issues and it, I realized that a few years ago and it's something that I'm trying to work on more actively. In fact, trust is my word of the year for 2021 because I wanted to be more mindful of it. But to be honest, here we are at the end of June 2021, and I don't know how much progress I've made towards being more trusting. I think I'm just more aware of it, and that's one of the first steps. So I don't think you're alone, and I think intimacy challenges show up in a lot of different ways. And and that's part of the beauty of relationships is they reveal those things to us. We've had our friend Jason Green on the show twice, and he actually has the top two episodes of the show so far about attachment styles. And that is super fascinating when you look at different attachments and how we attract kind of the opposite of us and how challenging it can be to find secure people and that's such a journey. And and I think some of this that you're describing, Jason, can be worked on, or most of it, perhaps. And then there's there's going to be a, a big chunk that either won't change that much or is just part of who we are. And that's okay, too. And I think it's really important what you said about letting go of this idea that a relationship's going to heal you or it's going to make you feel better. I think that was a great realization for me. And I don't really know when that happened, to be honest. I did start to see shifts and I see shifts within myself in every relationship that I've been in. And I'm really grateful for it. And I guess like that idea, it seems a little scary when you think that there's no guarantee of of A, security long-term because people change. And B, that idea around just find your person, get married, and you'll be happy. And I think the older I've grown without having ever been married, I've looked at it from all these different viewpoints. And I often think, wow, I'm glad I haven't been married yet. Because first of all, looking back on the men that I could have married, like it looked like it was possibly going in that direction. I feel like that just couldn't have lasted. I mean, one in particular, the relationship, the first actually really official girlfriend, boyfriend, solid, more emotionally mature relationship I had, that to me was the closest I got in my head to marrying someone. And after we broke up, he wrote me this really vulnerable letter saying how much he screwed up and felt like it was his fault the relationship ended and he should have married me and all these things. And I reflect on that sometimes and just like how different of a person I felt like I was back then, you know, because this is years ago when I was in college and a few years afterwards. And 
I just can't imagine, like, would I be happy? And would I even be who I am today? That you never know, right? But like, let's just say that if I married him, I still would have turned out to be who I am, where I'm in my life right now. I'm not sure that that relationship would be that satisfying. And I also am not sure, Jason, if I would choose to leave that relationship or stay in it. And that's something I'm super fascinated with about marriage and relationships in general, but especially marriage, because it seems like there's this idea I've had in my head, at least, that once you get like getting divorced is such a big deal, like much bigger than breaking up. And technically, there's just a legal difference, right? It's a little bit more complex in terms of the steps you have to take, whereas breaking up, it's so much easier. It's like, hey, we're done. I'm moving out or whatever, or whatever you're going to do versus like now with marriage, you have the law involved. And and now from my perspective, I can see why some people choose not to get married, even when they remain in long-term partnerships, because either A, they want that option to easily leave or B, it's just like, why do we need to get the law involved? You know, if we're satisfied in this relationship, like aside from some financial benefits, like why would we get married? And I think I'm a little bit more at that stage. I like the idea of having a wedding, but you could do it as a celebration. Like there's still elements of marriage and children that appeal to me. And I'm also open to the fact that my mind can change and I'm not settled in one way or another. It's just drastically different. And part of the reason I bring this up is not just as a reflection of my previous relationships, but also watching my friends go through marriage has been really fascinating. I feel like we've touched upon this before, Jason, in terms of like cheating too. I've had people very close to me in in my life who have been cheated on or have participated in cheating, whether they're in a relationship. A dynamic with somebody who's in a relationship. Like, I've observed a lot of these fascinating things. And it's interesting to see how my brain has evolved too, because I'm at a point now, Jason, where it's like I feel more fluid with it all as I observe. In the past, I would be like so opinionated. Like, I can't believe you cheated on this person. I can't believe that person cheated on you. Like, how could you stay in a relationship with them? I've had so many judgments about some of my friends who have stayed in marriages when they seem miserable without sharing any personal details. One of my friends is going through a lot of wavering right now between should she stay, should she go? And I noticed through listening to her how much I've shifted, Jason, whereas I recognize it's nothing to do with me. My opinion is not going to change her. And I actually would prefer not to influence her unless she wants my opinion I'm at a place now where I just deeply want what's best for her. And I accept that that in itself is a fluid process and it is truly complicated. I think a lot of us want that black and white, like this is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. He cheated. He's a bad person. I'm the victim. I'm going to leave, you know, but from what I've observed within myself and others, it's really not that easy. Some people will truly forgive somebody. Some people may never forgive them, but they stay in the relationship anyways because they're hoping that they can or they think that they have on some level. And also on the other side of the cheating element, first of all, that word cheating is is kind of like 
icky because everybody has their own reasons for choosing to have another partner. And maybe it is unfaithful. Maybe it is crossing a boundary. Maybe it's at the risk of hurting someone, but it's so nuanced, Jason. I think that's an important thing to mention. And I'm not, I'm as usual in this gray area where I really think it is a relative experience. And if we take away this black and white judgment of, of this is right versus this is wrong, that removes this heaviness of shame and acknowledges us for being messy human beings who are going through life every single moment with changes. The world's changing. Other people are changing. We're changing. Information's changing. I mean, we are constantly changing and that's okay. I think that that's where I stand on all of this, Jason. It's like, sure, the idea of somebody that I love, that I care about having a relationship with someone else feels scary and painful, but that's my response to them. You know, what can we do to address it? Why did that person choose to do that? Maybe I can start there by understanding. Why do I feel hurt by it? What do we do now, now that it's happened? You know? And I think you're the really great point that you made, Jason, about like the security side of it. Like, I think is just like, I wish that I had been raised with that mentality of just because you get married does not mean that you are safe and does not mean that you will be happy or satisfied. Can you imagine what life would be like? Growing up, understanding that, like, I think that could have radically shifted a lot of my early relationships. I agree. And I'll also venture to say that I think myself, I can only speak for myself, but I also would bet there's some people who can relate to what I'm about to say in the sense that the emotional or mental nourishment we did not receive as children from our parents. We seek in our adult romantic relationships. Allah, I felt abandoned by my father. That's probably my core wound of my life is abandonment. Not good enough. Well, if I can get into a romantic relationship with the illusion, she won't abandon me. Yes, I got abandoned by my father. But guess what? This person won't abandon me because she loves me. So I'll be safe. I'll be immune to abandonment. And I will overly attach and overly project the things I didn't receive from my parents onto this person and expect she will provide them because she says she loves me. And then I get upset. I get furious and resentful when she doesn't give me the things I want because I've gone into the romantic relationship being a needy person who hasn't yet found out how to give those reassurances to myself. So I project those on the other person thinking they ought to give them to me. And if you don't give them to me, fuck you, we're done. I think that's one prob probable reason why people either cheat or leave relationships is they're not, quote, getting what they want. And getting what they want may be tied to what they didn't receive or be nourished by in their childhood. I think that's definitely been true for me. The other side of it, too, I think, is if I look at – so I've been in relationships where I've been cheated on and I've done the cheating. I've, I've been on both sides of infidelity. And if I look at a, a thread through Whitney in the times that I have – engaged in infidelity in a monogamous relationship, which has been three times over the course of my life. It was because A, number one, 
I had not learned the skills to communicate my needs and my desires in a clear and unambiguous and emotionally anchored way. That was one of it. I didn't know how to communicate it. And I felt like the times that I did want to communicate, I was stifled by fear because I thought if I do communicate this need, this desire, or this boundary, they're going to leave me, aka fear of abandonment. So because I was afraid of being abandoned, I didn't communicate my truth. I didn't work on the tools to be able to express my truth because I was terrified they would abandon me. So for my own illusion of emotional security, I want to keep my partner, but I don't really feel emotionally or sexually or physically nourished by this person. So I'm going to go get that nourishment elsewhere where I feel it's more plentiful, but make sure that I'm inoculating myself against abandonment by staying in the relationship that doesn't fulfill me. Holy shit. I don't think I've ever expressed that verbally before, ever. But because of that, because of my terror of being abandoned, cheating, or being an infidelity, I would get my needs met by another person while still maintaining the need to not be abandoned. Now that I've come to that realization, again, as I've gone through life experience, I've started to learn and practice the tools of, hey, that didn't feel good. Or, hey, you know, I'm I'm feeling like I would like you to touch me more. I, I feel really nourished by touch. And I feel like we are not physically as affectionate as I would like. I didn't have the language for that, like in my 20s and early 30s. Now I have more of the language and the courage and the way to express that to a partner, which feels really good. But if I'm looking back at the times that I, I strayed Whitney and I had you know, either another person or another two people in some instances, it was like, I thought that the purpose of a relationship was to have that other person meet those needs for me. A, I think that's tremendously unfair to put that pressure on another person. And B, I don't think that that's a healthy container to have a relationship because the reality is we're on our individual journeys, right? With our traumas, our fears, our desires, our hopes, our loves, our fuck-ups, our successes, the entire kaleidoscope of the human experience, which is why we do this fucking podcast. That being said, how could we ever expect another person to fulfill those needs for us? Oh, I need to have you provide emotional security for me. I need you to somehow make me feel good enough. Like your love is finally going to make me. And I, I say this from personal experience. No amount of love I've ever received in my life has filled the trauma of me not feeling good enough. A person can say, I love you. I love you. You're amazing. You're incredible. I adore you. You're, you're a gift in my life. But if I haven't healed that trauma in myself, there's no amount of love that another person is going to give me. And I think that's one reason why I've ping-ponged in certain years of relationship to relationship to relationship with no break in between. Because it was the idea, Whitney, you'll give me what I want. She didn't, but you will. Oh, shit, she didn't either. Okay, this other person will. Oh, shit, she didn't either. Well, maybe she... And realizing that the premise of why I was entering relationship was setting myself up for failure because I expected all of that to be provided from that other person. So now it's like, you know, my paradigm now is how can I work on my pain, my fears, my trauma, become a more whole person, and then bring more of that wholeness into a relationship? Not completely healed, right? Because one of the things I've worked on over the years with my therapist was the pain of feeling like I had to be perfectly healed and fully healed before I would get into a relationship because I didn't want to bring my quote baggage. But look, we've all got baggage. We've all got pain. We've all got trauma and things we're working on. It doesn't mean we can never be in a relationship. We'd be alone our entire lives. But I think the key is for me, at least at this point, Whitney, to be working on those things, working on myself actively 
and be with a person who is also working on herself. And the fact that like, look, we're both imperfect humans. We've both had pain, but we're working on it and we're trying to love ourselves and give ourselves what we perceive we need. So I'm not needy and trying to get those things from you. Because I think in some ways, Wit, the context I'm talking about that I engaged in for years was very transactional. If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to dispose of you and go to a person that will. It's very, I don't know, it's very transactional in a way. How did you work through this conversation today with Laura? How did she respond? Did she get defensive? Did she respond in a different way? Did you share the things that you've shared on the show today? Or have you not fully processed it enough to share? And if so, do you plan to talk about this further with her? A- I didn't process it fully enough. Um, One of my styles of emotional processing is I need to sit with things to marinate in them before I have the language to accurately communicate them. That was number one. Number two, she had to go to work semi-early, so I felt like there wasn't a window to sit down and have that conversation. And number three, absolutely, I do intend on telling her. She's aware of my history of being cheated on, and I don't know that she is aware that, and I wasn't aware to that point, Whitney, until that happened this morning, I wasn't even aware that that was a trigger that still existed. You know, it was like, oh shit, that's still a trigger. Interesting. I get to look at that. So I absolutely do want to bring it up with her because it's nothing I feel afraid to communicate. But when I get triggered like that, I like to sit with it and sort through it before I bring it to my beloved, my loved one and discuss it. So yes, yes. And I'm going to sit down and tell her like, hey, you know that text that came through at 3.30? I want to tell you about something like really interesting that came up for me because it is interesting. I'm not judging myself for having that trigger. I just think it's fascinating, as I said at the beginning, that we can work, whether that's through therapy, somatic experiencing, psychedelics, whatever our, our form of personal healing is, breath work, meditation. And I've, I've had this happen with where I'm like, ah, I'm done with that. That trigger doesn't exist anymore. That trauma's healed. Get a slice of cake. You know, like I'm going to treat myself to a slice of cake. I'm done with that shit. Hallelujah. And years later, years, something will happen seemingly innocuous that goes, bing. Guess what, bud? You're not fully done. And I have to laugh at that. In in the past, I get so fucking frustrated by it. You know what I mean? Like, I spent years on this shit. What do you mean it's coming back up? Now, with what happened this morning, I've got to laugh a little bit. It's like, oh, you, you tricky motherfucker, you. Oh, you. You're still in there hanging out in whatever my amygdala just like, hey, guess what? You're still afraid of being cheated on. You thought you were done. I have to laugh because it's like, it brings up a real ser- serious question, Whitney. Are we ever fully healed from our deepest traumas? Is that even a pot? Because I think in the wellness field we're in, there is sort of this framework from certain people of like, you know, reprogram your brain and rewire your brain and let go of all your trauma and finally be free with my $12,000 program in Bali. But really, are we ever truly 100% healed from our trauma? What do you think? I doubt it. I haven't. Yeah. I mean, it feels kind of like a simple answer. So I would venture to say no. Well, you just saved me $12,000 in a trip to Bali. Thank you. Thank you. I do want to say, and this is the part where, you know, Jason's being judgmental again. Don't fucking care. 
There's a lot of people out there, I think, putting a very dangerous framework out into the universe via the coaching, high-performance, well-being community that frame their work as a way to completely heal yourself from your wounds and your trauma. I think that in many, not all cases, in, in a lot of cases, that's kind of really irresponsible to position work that way. That's my opinion, is to position something as you will be free of this thing forever with my program, my formula, my drink, my injection, my whatever, the, my cult, since we go back and do a call back to that. I think that there's a lot of deep manipulation that happens in the wellness community around this subject, and I think it's dangerous and fucked up. I think there are people who are healers, who are clinicians, who are in the medical field, the spirituality field, the healing arts that are the real deal. But I think there's an equal, if not higher amount of charlatans out there who are positioning their things as the end all be all. And you just got to give me money and come to this exotic foreign country and we'll work on it for a week and you'll be completely free of it. Again, this is my own lens on it, having done therapy for nearly a decade, having done a lot of psychedelic medicine, having done a lot of really painful trauma work on myself, I feel like I've made a ton of progress with, but there's still residue. There's still those remnants there, you know? And I wonder if even the term healer is a fair word in terms of what actually happens, because first of all, it depends on your definition of healing. Like, it's not the same as when our body heals and you can, you know, although it also depends because our body can heal, but we can still have scars, you know, and we can still have things triggered and flamed. You know, recently I've been having some bizarre pain in my back, like the shoulder kind of scapula lats area. And like, I have no idea how it's happening why it keeps happening. I feel like I need to go see a specialist around it. Like what my brain goes to is it's very possible that I had some sort of injury or, or misalignment has happened over time and I can make it feel better, but then it keeps coming back until I address the deeper issue. But even when I address the deep issue, that doesn't mean that it won't happen again. So our body is working in an interesting way in that sense and our brains too. I mean, this idea that you'll be fixed, I think, if that's your definition of healing, I, I believe that to be a bit dangerous because to your point, Jason, you'll be chasing after it your whole life, hoping that one day if you just do this thing. And I think that's why a lot of people, A, feel misled because somebody through their marketing promises them something or they have it in their head that it's a promise, that it's a guarantee that if you go to this therapist, if you take this pill, if you take this course, if you go to this retreat, whatever you're trying or, you know, an episode that we did with you, Jason, was about your ayahuasca journey. And I'm curious now looking back because I don't remember exactly what you said, but did you go into ayahuasca thinking it was going to like heal everything and like solve some issues? And then when you came out the other side, how you felt then versus how you feel now? I mean, are you looking back and thinking, hmm, that didn't really do much or, huh, that was really great, but, or wow, it actually did heal me and I didn't recognize it at the time. To be honest, I, I went in with very little expectations of what would happen because of the 
wide spectrum of experiences I had heard from friends and acquaintances on ayahuasca that none of them sounded exactly the same. So it really was kind of a psycho-spiritual roulette I was playing, and I knew that going in. On the other side of it, you know, to just call back to that episode, and by the way, everything we're mentioning today, all of the resources are at our website, wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section, and it will take you to all the resources in the show notes and the transcript for this episode, including the ayahuasca episodes, which were a two-parter. You know, there was a reinforcement of deep lessons through that experience, Whitney, and there were some deeper understandings and realizations that I had, but it was not a magic pill. It was not a panacea that was like, you're never going to be depressed or anxious or fear abandonment or any of those things again. It gave me different, it like polished the lens on some of those subjects in a certain way, but it didn't take away those conditions, if if that makes sense. Now, I am trying some new things. I, I've been microdosing for about a week and a half now on psilocybin, and I've noticed, as I said, I think in a previous episode, like my anxiety has drastically reduced since I started doing that, which has been beautiful. Does that mean my anxiety will never come back? Knowing my life to this point, it'll probably come back, but it's drastically reduced, which is beautiful to say. I know we say this, and we've said this in so many episodes, but I think the willingness to be open to radical new experiments in life is the foundation. For me, at least, if I go into a relationship, a healing modality, a psychedelic experience, thinking like, this will be the thing, I'll finally be free, that hasn't been the case for me. It certainly allowed me to go deeper into certain layers, right, and, and look at those and love those and understand those and allow me to work on my trauma and my wounds differently and take different approaches, but the idea you're saying, Whitney, of this magic pill, this panacea, this fountain of youth, this magic key, I think this trope, and I'm not saying it's not true for other people. Let me, let me just say that. I do believe that for some people, maybe a specific kind of ceremony, therapy, modality has, quote, healed them, and they truly believe that. But the danger, I think, comes in so many captions on social media where it's like, I did this thing and I finally feel liberated and free for the first time in my life. Finally, I've let go of all this stuff. And it's like, that may be true for you. But sometimes that language is positioned in, hey, if you do this thing too, you'll feel what I feel, which we know is motherfucking bullshit. Talking about your bullshit, you know it's not true. It's true for you. Doesn't mean it's true for everybody too. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, let's get real. What works for another person does not guarantee it's going to work for another. We've talked about this in terms of entrepreneurship, wealth creation, career building, relationship. And now we're talking about in terms of trauma, infidelity, healing our relationships. We have to be radically persistent and determined to try as many things as possible. I believe that is, if there's a foundation of healing, Whitney, or well-being, let's just say that, it's we have to be willing to try as many new things as possible. And what works for you ain't going to work for me. What works for me ain't going to work for Sally, Jim, Joe, Bobby, and Sue. You know, and, and I think that's true. Like my pain, my fear, my trauma around infidelity and abandonment, it's not that it's not relatable. I mean, it definitely is relatable. I've talked to people, I've talked to my many people about it. They're like, I can relate. But I think the nuance of what may help me with my neurology, my heart, my trust issues, my all that, it's going to be a different puzzle. It's going to be a different concoction. It's going to be a different brew than another person. So this idea of a one-size-fits-all approach to addressing our pain and our trauma, I really believe it's an individual journey. 
And I think we have to be persistent and determined and relentless in figuring out what the puzzle looks like for us because it ain't going to be the same. So that being said, we want to know your opinion as always. Dear listener, dear reader, dear watcher, if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for your subscribership. If you are a patron, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you're not a patron already, we have a growing legion of wonderful human beings from all over the world that are supporting this podcast. And by supporting it on Patreon, which again, we'll put to the link in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can sign up for as low as $2 a month. $2 a month? I mean, that's, you know, I was about to say that can buy us a matcha here in LA. It can't even buy us a matcha. Maybe a micro mini if they had a Starbucks size that like, you can get one ounce of matcha. Maybe that would be two bucks. But nonetheless, what your $2 does or more you have some patrons who give us more. It allows us to invest in new recording equipment. It allows us to invest in marketing the podcast. In hopefully this year, we might bring a new assistant on. We've talked about that. It allows us to do these things to help bring this message and these perspectives on healing and wellness and mental health to more people around the world. So if you want to be a patron, you also get access to our wonderful new private podcast called This Hits the Spot, which is a wonderful kaleidoscopic cavalcade of mine and Whitney's favorite new products, foods, services, books, courses, people, music, basically everything that we're super stoked about, we share with you on that short form podcast. It's about 15 to 20 minutes long, and you will get exclusive access to that as a patron or as a newsletter subscriber. So all those resources at our website, wellevator.com. And if you want to email us, we are at hello at wellevator.com. Shoot us a DM on Instagram pull our tug on our earlobes on social media, whatever you want to do, we're here for you. And we appreciate you going deep with us into these often painful, confusing, and uncomfortable subjects. But guess what? That's why we're doing the damn podcast to talk about this shit. So until next time, we love you. We appreciate you. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.